Bibles, turn to Genesis 26. You know the deal. My original plan was for us to get through the end of the chapter, at least through this single narrative, and we ain't going to do that. So uh, forgive me, um, but uh, it's going to take us a little longer than I had anticipated to, to get through this. And the reason is it's because as we read through it, um, it, it, it's amazing that when you read through the Bible, you think, okay, it's a story. But when you really pause and, and, and try to think, okay, if I were in that situation, why do people do the things that they do? And how would I respond? And, and you really start to see that we're reading an ancient book written thousands of years ago. And it is clear to me, humans have not changed one iota. Right? You, you've heard me say before that we humans are good at changing the outside. Uh, modern medicine, technology. Uh, we have yet to figure out how to transform the inside. And that is why uh, the gospel is so important. But I want to begin by telling you a, a story. Um, uh, when, when our son was little, it was before we, we had uh, Evangel, he was at that age where he could sit up if you sat him up, but he couldn't pull himself up, right? You know, the cute stage. And, and one day I was in his room with him, sort of watching him, and he had a toy that was a, a plastic barn. And uh, it had, on the, on the roof of, of, of the barn, was like a... A, a square hole, a circle hole, a star hole, and I, I, I don't know, whatever else, an X or something like that. And it came with four plastic toys, a sheep, a cow, a, a chicken, whatever. And, and they were standing on platforms that were the shape of, of those holes. So you had a star, you had a square, a circle, all that sort of stuff. So it was you know, a typical game for, for babies and toddlers to, to, to say, okay, the X needs to go in here. It can't go in the square. You, you know what sort of games I'm talking about. He loved this thing. And he would carry it around with him everywhere. And when we would go to uh, grandparents' house, he would, that would be one of the first toys we would grab. He just absolutely loved this toy. And I was watching him play it one time, and he was able to figure out pretty good, even at a young age, always been observant a little kid. And, and he, he would put the square in, and, he put, you know, and, and it would fall through the barn. You get it out, and you could put it back in. And, and I noticed that, that as he was playing with it, let's say the pig that was a square, I don't know, it, it, it sort of just bounced away from him that he couldn't reach. But in his arm, you see how kids like to carry everything. So in his arms, he has the three other shapes. But the other one is just right over there. And he's looking at his little, his little barn animals and shapes. And he's looking at the one that, that he can't play with. He looks at the ones he has, and he looks at the one he can't play with. And you'll see, he, he would reach over, and he'd start to lose balance, and he'd, he'd come back. And he'd look at those three he had, and he'd look over there. He might even try to play with these three, but his attention would go right back over. And he would just stretch and stretch. He'd come really close. He just couldn't reach it. And I'm watching him. And eventually, he couldn't stand it anymore. So he reached with all that he had to the point that he fell down. I mean, he was sitting up, so he fell over, and he finally got a hold of that pig with the square base on it. And there he is laying down. He's like, yes, I got my pig, right? I got it. Then he realized in the process he had dropped the other three, and he can't sit back up. He can't crawl back up. And I thought, it's amazing, isn't it, that we are willing to lose more to gain what we don't have rather than to appreciate the, one, the, the, the things that we do have. He was richer if he was content with what he had than he was when he went to grab the thing that he wanted most. This text is really a, a picture of that. 
in all this agricultural sort of uh, society that is really foreign to many of us, it really comes down to the human heart of discontentment, of envy, greed. And, and, and Isaac is really a victim here. So let's read verses 12 to 16, and we'll, we'll see this. Genesis 26. Um, I am in Exodus. That's not going to help you anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. But he didn't lose the 99. Good try there, Donnie. <laughs> you, this is our Gavin. Uh, Lonnie, this is our Gavin right here. Right? You, you just, you just got to watch him. Yeah, you see, you're like, every, every group has one, right? <laughs> Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now, you'll notice here, right, the context is important. Uh, God reaffirmed his covenant with Isaac. We saw that last week. And, and that unconditional promise comes with the conditional promise. That if you stay in the promised land, I'll bless you. Don't go to Egypt like, like your father did. So he stayed in the promised land, goes to Gerir, and he still does the same thing his, his father did. And that is, against the guy named Abimelech in Gerar, he, he lies about his wife being his sister, right? And there we saw that the, that the pagans were having to corrupt, correct the, uh, uh, the man of God, right? And that's, that's a story arc throughout the Bible. Well, he settled there, and you'll notice that he is sowing, right? And um, this is interesting because Isaac and the patriarchs aren't primarily farmers in the sense that they don't plant crops. They're more known for their livestock, uh, in fact, we know this archaeologically. Um, the Asiatics in Egypt around you know, this time, around the time of Moses and whatnot, um, they, they, they are known as sheep herders. And so we, we have all these graves with, with cement, uh, Semites, and with them are sheep bones. Sheep bones everywhere, right? Because they're, they're raising sheep. So, so we know that their agricultural uh, choice was that of livestock. But here he's having to sow. And remember, this is in the context of a famine in this land. Um, and that's why he was tempted to go to Egypt. So because of the famine, he, he has to help around. He's a sojourner. He's not a citizen. He has to help uh, with the planting and growing of crops on top of everything else. However, it's not like this was a foreign thing to them. Um, we, we see later uh, that Reuben... Um, you know, gets the mandrakes in the field and all that sort of stuff. That's, this is a wild story when, when we get the mandrakes. So uh, this is between Rachel and Leah. Uh, it's, it's a wild story. But we see that they have a field with, with produce in it. So uh, this isn't unusual. What is unusual uh, is that his crops return a hundredfold. Now, that is an exceptional amount of prosperity even in the time of uh, good weather. Now, I'm sure we, we've all lived long enough that we, we, we've had summers. Like I grew up in a rural community. It was tobacco um, to where um, droughts are a real strain on rural communities. And it could take years to really recover from a bad drought. When we were in Breckenridge County. Uh, we had uh, really bad floods one year, really bad floods. And it shut down, I think I've told you this before, it shut down uh, Rough River Lake. And so our tourist money was just gone. 
And so we had restaurants that depended on that. We had um, like log cabins and uh, hotels and other stuff that relied on that. Not to mention just the fishing and hunting and all that sort of stuff. And so it just devastated the community. And farmers, they, they couldn't farm as well because they were all the floods. And so they got the crops out late. I think it was a, a spring flood that carried on in the summer. Well, the next year, we didn't have a problem with floods. We had a problem with a drought. And so that flood year that we, we had these little beaches, the, the, the uh, yellow, uh, yellow um, uh, rope, I guess, you know, uh, it, was, it looked like it was way out in the lake because of the floods were so high up near the road. But during the drought, the water was past the yellow rope where you were supposed to swim. So you could go past where you would normally swim at Rough River and, and still not be stepping in water. I mean, it was a very bad drought, really, really bad. They were having issues of, of uh, what to do with the dam and you know, with the floods because there was so much water, the drought, you know, because they're trying to do all this sort of stuff. It was, so in two years, we just had, we just had nothing. And it really affected our, our local community. But what's so significant here is that the, the, the return that is, that is great for times of prosperity happens in the time of famine. And so uh, this is the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, you see it there in verse 12 that God blessed him. Um, the Lord blessed him. Yahweh blessed him. Well, that was the promise. If you'll stay here, I will bless you. Now, again, what we see is, is Isaac obeys, which is an act of faith. God blesses that act of faith. Now, one thing that stuck out to me is that this mirrors, it parallels Isaac's own story of his birth. So, so with Sarah, to use the metaphor, her womb is like a famine. Um, it was impossible for her to, to give birth. Yet, despite those conditions, they had Isaac. Here, what you have is conditions by which you shouldn't produce a hundredfold. Yet, by God's grace... Uh, he fulfills the promise in giving that to him. So remember the theme we've seen throughout Genesis is how God turns a wilderness into an oasis. So Genesis 1-2, God's spirit hovers over the face of the earth and the deep of the waters, and he creates out of that uh, a garden, in the garden within Eden. And those boundaries were supposed to extend. What happens then? So they go out into the wilderness. And what happens along the way, you see these gardens, these oases. Noah builds one when he gets off the ark and he gets drunk and all that. You remember that um, 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 Hagar and Ishmael, when they were fleeing, she laid him down in a bush in the shade so that he could die. And she would go off in the distance because she couldn't stand to hear him scream as he died. Remember, there's just a terrible scene. Do you remember what happened? She looked up or the angel Lord showed up and, and showed her there's a spring right over there. There was an oasis in the middle of the wilderness. This is a common theme throughout Genesis, and really it's a, throughout the Bible. That's basically what the gospel is. Um, but the Lord does the impossible. Now notice this in verse 13. Um, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Now, um, I do think it is worth mentioning here a few things about wealth. We, we've talked about this here. As a result of this abundant crop... He becomes wealthy, obviously, right? Because he he shows up at the uh, uh, shows is it Cincinnati where all the farmers used to go. Is it Cincinnati? There's a Johnny Cash movie. He went to Cincinnati because he had a bunch of crops. 
Well, in Johnny Cash's movie, I'm like 90% sure I'm right on this. Cincinnati grew because of all the farmers came to sell their crops and their livestock any day. Someone needs to Google that or talk to an old farmer. Anyway, so, so uh, you know, everyone else is barely getting by. He shows up with, with loads full of produce. So obviously that makes him, makes him very, very wealthy. Uh, but given our cultural, political context, I do think a brief word needs to be made in how we think about wealth. Um, wealth is morally neutral. You can be righteous and wealthy. You can be unrighteous and wealthy. There are people on both sides of this in the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, David, Solomon, for the most part, lean towards the righteous side, yet are wealthy. There are plenty of unrighteous wealthy people, uh, like Pharaoh and Herod, the so-called great, and, and, and a host of others. Having wealth is a moral neutral reality. We could say the same thing about poverty. It too is morally neutral. There are plenty of people who are righteous and poor. Jesus, I think, belongs in that category. Then there are those who are unrighteous and poor. And Judas, I don't think, was just filthy rich, right? Um, and, and yet he, he, he makes some very poor decisions. And throughout the Bible, we see both the rich and the poor some are righteous, some unrighteous. But what, what we do, and what our discussions on wealth, particularly now, uh, and his distribution, is, is, is we think we're discussing righteousness. Really what we're discussing is covetousness. So we say things like, it's not fair that they have blank. Or, I think it would be better if we did X, Y, and Z to, uh, uh, it's a loaded term, it's not what I'm wanting to use, the more spread the wealth around. And it's a loaded term, so I don't, that's not really what I'm looking for. There are those who, who, who think that. Um, and when we express that, we're expressing not that we think wealth is bad, because if, if we were the ones wealthy, we would be arguing otherwise. But rather we think it's not good that they have it and I don't. Much of our discussion about wealth in his nation is not really about what is right or wrong. It's really about um, its covetousness. What motivating is, I want it. I should have it. I deserve it. And it's not fair. And that is dangerous. One of the great measures of your spiritual maturity is your ability to celebrate the successes of other people without demanding the same for yourself. So, if your neighbor gets that job promotion and you think they are a bumbling fool, can you celebrate with them? Or do you think, game's rigged? Right? You see the covetousness coming out? If, if your friend inherits a lot of money, statistically speaking, they're going to lose it no more than three generations if it's a lot of wealth. But probably they'll lose it within about three weeks. But if they inherit a lot of wealth, can you celebrate with them? You know, maybe they'll invite you over for dinner. You know, they're going to pay, of course. But maybe, you know, you can at least celebrate with them. If your cousin gets married before you, right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, baby fever. Like you, some, you, some of you long, young ladies have this, right? Where, where all your friends had the babies and you didn't have the baby yet. So you go up to your significant other like, I really want that baby, right? right? Can you celebrate with someone else even in your lack? If your coworker gets to travel a lot and you want to start traveling or, or your, your friend is married to someone who travels a lot and they, I don't know, just, just you can think of a thousand scenarios. 
an inability to celebrate someone else's success, someone else's blessing is a real spiritual um, um, measuring stick. Well, notice what happens is this, this is, this, this is what happens to Isaac. Isaac is blessed. Now, we need to remember this is a very difficult time. Everyone else is suffering, and Isaac all of a sudden gets the big house on the hill. And remember, he is the outsider. I do think you can read this text with, with some uh, uh, negative views regarding immigrants. Um, Isaac is an immigrant. He's not a citizen of, of this place. So in he walks... He endangers the men with what he did with his wife, and then he turns around and steals all the money. Or so it would be argued on Twitter, right? Now, remember, wealth is something that can be created. And in, in essence, that's what he's done. He created wealth. But that's not the way people are going to perceive it. After all, as we'll see, he is privileged. If I can use loaded modern terms. This outsider comes in, and he already has wells that seem to be blessing his crops. You see how easy it is to, to take the blessings of God in someone else's life and to assume the worst about them? Uh, we see in this text that Abraham put these. We'll have more to say about them. And so, so they're going to attack him. Verse 14. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now, now th th that is important. His, his riches is in crops, and he's not even, you know, that sort of farmer. And livestock, which is the sort of thing he is, and servants, right? He, he's got a bunch of people working for him to, to, to make all of this possible. So the more money he makes, the more people he hires, which means more influence in the local town, right? If he, if he is the number one employer in the city, he, he yields a lot of power and significance. And if he's an immigrant, boy, that means, you know, we, we don't like that too much. But that word envied is important. This is the first time this word, at least, at least the way it is in the Hebrew, is used in the Bible. Uh, let me show you a few other examples in Genesis. Not a common word in Genesis, but when it shows up, it's an important time. The first is, or this is the first. The second is Genesis 31. When Rachel saw that Leah bare children, no children, Rachel envied, or sorry, when Rachel saw that she didn't bear Jacob any children, she envied her sister. And she said, give me children lest I die. Now, we're going to return to this Sunday morning, um, um, I think. I've looked at this verse like a thousand times this week. Anyway, so um, Elizabeth says that, doesn't she? No. I don't know. Anyways, so um, you, you know the story, right? Rachel is loved by Jacob. Leah is not. Leah has children by Jacob. Rachel does not. And what you have is Rachel has the toys. But there's one thing she lacks. And she's willing to give up Jacob's affection for children. Leah has her toys. And that is she has children. But she doesn't have Jacob's affection. She's willing to abandon those for the affection. And the word the text uses is the same word used here to describe the Philistines, the pagans envied jealousy another example is uh isaac's sons or jacob's sons rather isaac's grandkids in genesis 37 his brethren joseph's brethren envied him but his father observed this is the dreams 
He shows up and says, oh, by the way, y'all going to bow down to me. Just get used to it. All right. And, 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 and they begin to envy Joseph because he's favored by his father, because he's the firstborn of his favorite wife. Um, and so they envy Joseph. Now, in, in each narrative, the envy of the Philistines leads to violent action. The envy of Rachel and Leah leads to violent action. The envy of Joseph's brothers leads to violent action. So, so this is why we see that when it comes to something like envy, it isn't just, oh, to get over yourself. It is a spiritual issue. It is a heart issue. Left unchecked, it will consume you and damage others. And so this is the pattern throughout the Bible. Evil, or envy rather, along with its twin covetousness, can drive us to do a lot of dangerous and sometimes even petty acts. It is the opposite of contentment. Unchecked envy does not seek the well-being or the success of other people. And sometimes it comes in subtle, sometimes less subtle. So let's just say you're a kid, right? And, and it's the last day of school. And you're talking to your best friend. You say, best friend, what are you doing? And your best friend says, look, man, we, we're, we're going to travel the world. For two months, we are, we are going to get in. in we're going to get in a, in a camper. I mean, we're just going to go. We're already going to go to to Yellowstone. We're going to go to Niagara Falls. We're going to go to Mammoth Cave. We're we're going to see the the Arch in St. Louis. We're going to see the Golden Gate Bridge in California. We're going to uh, see where the aliens landed in Roswell. We're going to meet the president, and we're we're going like. And they just name all this stuff. And you're sitting there like, I get to spend two weeks with Grandma. And what you'll do, because your inability, this is, a, this is a petty example, but because your inability to celebrate with your friend, you'll say something like, oh, well, I don't really like to travel anyways. And just like that, you cut them down to your size. And you don't even know you're doing it. Because you lack content. Is there anything wrong with going to grandma's for two weeks? No, no, that's... One of my favorite parts, that and my crazy aunt, right? My great aunt, uh, we, we saw her over Thanksgiving, my crazy I loved going over to see my crazy aunt, right? That and her sons uh, had like a trampoline and a, and a motorcycle and dirt bike, and I like that stuff too. And he had a Nintendo with Mike Tyson's old game on it, you know? Man, I could play that thing for hours. The old Zelda game, right? They, they, he had a, uh, one of them had a really fancy like Corvette car I loved. Another one brought home, you don't care about this, brought home um, one of those like big monster trucks where the tire was three size my size. Oh, that was awesome, right? Make a whole summer of that, and I, I was happy. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. So, so, so envy may start with little petty things where we say things to, to cut people down to size. And we may not even see it, but eventually left unchecked, it, it, it will grow much worse. Um, Solomon wrote this in Proverbs, uh, which I didn't put up there. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. When you can celebrate the successes and blessings of others out of a heart of contentment, you are free. But without that tranquil heart, to use the language of Proverbs 14, what you'll find is you'll become consumed with other people's lifestyles, consumed with what it is you don't have. And as a result, you, you, you ignore the blessings God has given you because of what he has kept from you. Much like Eve right, and, and Adam, right? They have all the trees of Eden. 
There's that one bite they like. And they have to have that one bite. Well, out of this envy, what do the Philistines do? Well, they do something violent here. They destroy personal property. Verse 15, Now the Philistines has stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. Notice a few things here. These wells, as we said, were dug by Abraham himself uh, following the, the treaty he made with Abimelech. So you remember the parallels. Now, now, we, now we're going to get the opposite. When, when Abraham made the treaty with Abimelech, out of that came an oasis in the wilderness. These wells were, were, were dug. And so there was a place to, to water the land, which became the key to them surviving the famine. When Isaac makes the treaty with Abimelech, what happens? It isn't that life comes out of it due to envy. Death comes out of it. Now, I want you to pause and think about this. In one sense, this act damages Isaac. It does. It's his wells. There's a nostalgic part to it. My daddy put this here, and he's dead, and, and now you've destroyed something that my dad did. That, that would bother me. I have really about the only thing we have left my grandfather's business in my office now. It's, it's a set of keys. One to a Mazzy Fersion tractor, the other to his place of business. Right? That is all we have left. If I lose them, right, my family's going to be really wounded. You know, because we weren't able to get more out of that for nostalgic reasons. That is really important to us. So here you have these wells destroyed. Now, I want you also to think that that does, it does hurt Isaac. You know who else this hurts? The Philistines. <laughs> think about it. If these wells are the secret weapon to uh, mass producing crops in the middle of a famine, what did they just do? They destroyed any chance they had to survive the famine. It's foolishness. Foolishness. This is why marriage is so important, isn't it? Husbands, you ever just, I'm, I'm spitting mad. I'm going to go lay to SmackDown. And your wife comes up and says, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't do that. Or why does it ever get to a point where, where well, I'm going to respond with a nasty text. And your husband's like, well, we just put the phone down for a minute, right? You, you do need that. But what they have decided to do because of their envy and contempt for Isaac, this outsider, this immigrant, they are destroying their own chances to make it through the famine. There's nothing rational about this. This is the sort of things you're going to see on daytime television, where people act irrationally out of anger and resentment and envy and jealousy and bitterness of the soul. There's nothing rational about this. Now, Isaac is forced to leave, which is what they want. But what is left behind? Not abundance, but poverty. You see, it isn't the wealth of Isaac they want. Because they want it for themselves. But, but they want him destroyed. And if that means their own poverty, that, that, that is fine. Um, let me see. I think I have... Um, oh, Donald, he's doing it again. Okay, there. It's going to happen at least once a week, I think. Right? Uh, it's no, no big deal if, if, if not. Right? Um, you go down to verse 16. It says, And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. That word mightier stuck out to me. Because this is the king telling an immigrant, You're mightier than we are. Thank you. This is when Abimelech uh, builds the, the wells. Uh, or Abraham, rather, builds the wells. For, for a bit. Thank you, Don. Um, this word mightier is interesting. I don't, does anyone have a different translation? Mine says mightier. You have something different? 
I didn't look it up in the other translations. Powerful? Okay, yeah, that's a good, I kind of like that better. Okay, too powerful, all right. Let me show you the next two times. This is the first of three uses that I want us to look at. The next two times it's used is in the book of Exodus. This word's never used again in Genesis. Exodus 1. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. I think the word strong is the word here. I could be wrong. One more. Exodus 1, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Do you see commonality between these three passages? The issue is fruitfulness. A long, long, long time ago when we started this study, we did a whole study on the language of fruitfulness in Genesis, in the Bible. And fruitfulness is a picture of God's blessing and man's obedience. So remember the commandment is to be fruitful and multiply. What did Isaac do in, among the Philistines? He was very fruitful in an in a, in a agricultural sense. And because of that blessing, that, that strength he gained from it, he is sent away. The Israelites under this other Pharaoh, they too are fruitful and multiply. What's the response? They enslaved them. It's amazing that, that the strength described, the power, the might described here, isn't an army. It's the blessing of God. And when the blessing of God is seen by these, these pagans, they respond with force. It really, really is amazing. Because, one of the reasons is because we naturally do not like to celebrate when other people win, when other people succeed. And so if they're blessed, that must mean I'm cursed. And so Isaac is sent away. Well, what I want to do for the time that we have... Um, I want us to talk about the sin of envy and covetousness. Because if you want to get down to root issues of sin, which is what the gospel does. Religion deals with outward stuff. Be a good boy and you'll be fine. The gospel deals with the heart. Envy and covetousness, they're twins. They, they, it is a heart issue. If you can address it, you can experience real freedom because its opposite, which the gospel produces, is that of contentment. At the end of the day, we want to be content. We want to be able to rest securely in the blessings of God and where we are right now. So a couple things to note here. I don't like how these are laid out. If I had more time, I could maybe alliterate them, but that's okay. Pattern over circumstances. Do you ever tell yourself that if your circumstances were different, you'd be happier, more content, better mood, et cetera, et cetera? You ever tell yourself that, right? We, we all have, so... You don't, have to, you don't have to raise your hand. If you had a different job, you wouldn't be so stressed. If you had a more attentive husband, well, you wouldn't have to call your mother so much, right? I don't know. If you had a more a, a aggressive or attentive wife, right? Then you wouldn't have to complain to the boy so much. I, I, I don't know what the scenario is. If you got that promotion, if you changed scenery, if you could work from home, if you can get a change of bosses, you know, whatever it is, right? That if my circumstances changed, then my heart would be better. What you're finding then is, is that if, if the outside would transform, then the inside will, will transform. We think circumstances is the problem, not the pattern of behavior. 
I think I can prove this to you. Um, at least yearly, I, I suspect, we'll have someone come, a guest come. And as usually, we, we are all friendly to them, hope you come back, all this sort of stuff. And oftentimes they will come back. But eventually, they'll say things like, well, that last church. Let me tell you, they were just rude. Oh, I, I'm sorry you went through that. I hope, to, hope you, 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 know, you can find a home here at East Frankfurt and grow in Christ. And the church before that, music was just terrible. I mean, they, 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 did, they, they couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, we, we believe that worship is, is, is important to the church and we want to worship and spur in the truth. The church before that, let me tell you, God couldn't preach a lick, right? He, he, I mean, he, he, was, he was good at visiting, but my goodness, I don't think he could read. Well, don't preach. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. We, we trust the Lord will to, 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 to use him still there at that church. And the church before that, let me tell you, they split over the color of the carpet. I'm so sorry, glad to hear you're on the right side of that split. You know, you can just keep, and you start to notice a pattern playing. And then, then it hits you. I wonder what they're going to say about us, right? This happened recently um, where, where I sort of said to someone, like, we're going to love this person with all we have. And you need to know, six weeks tops, six weeks tops. Because they literally said, I think I've been to every church in this county. That's like, and we were at the end. My goodness, what are the chances? But okay, it didn't last six weeks. This is typical. You'll notice the pattern is, the problem is the churches. But the real reality is there's a common denominator, me. So you've heard me say, you know, a guy, he's, he's on wife number five or six. I'm, and I'm like, please tell me by this last most recent round, you've realized you're the problem. You see, in each, in each situation, they think if I change circumstances, a different job, another spouse, I try a different church, go to a different community, a bigger house, or something more convenient in the city, outside of town, whatever it is, then what it is I'm looking for, I find. What you find is actually, no, it's not circumstances, it's a pattern of behavior. And that pattern of behavior is what envy is. Envy is a behavior sin, not a circumstantial sin. This is why when people win the lottery, they are not any happier. In fact, they're usually more miserable. If you cannot handle a family budget when you're poor, you will not be able to handle a family budget when you're filthy rich. Does fame resolve insecurities? No. Because insecurities is not a circumstantial problem. It's something much deeper than that. So desire can be good or bad. We're, we're, we're told to desire the things of God. However, when we turn good things into God things, um, our idolatry um, turns us into unsatisfied worshipers. We're always trying to get that one other thing to make us happy. We simply want and we want more. Um, this is why the more we have, the more we want. Um, it's a vicious cycle because it's a pattern, not circumstances. Um, Solomon picks up on this. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This is my reward. I consider all the hands I'd done, the toil I had exp uh, exp expended in doing it. Behold, it was vanity, a striving after a win. Right? I, I, kept, I kept going, kept going, kept going. I was not denied anything. What I found was emptiness because he thought it was a circumstantial issue. It's a pattern issue. Secondly, coveting and envy begets other sins. 
Jews and Christians have always considered the Tenth Commandments, that is, do not covet, to be a bookend, right? So if you take the First Commandment, have no other gods, the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, and you, you obey just either one of those, you obey the other nine. So if you worship only God, you'll obey the other nine. If you do not covet, you'll obey the other nine. We've always understood this. And, and uh, New Testament picks up on this. Christian theology has always picked up on this. Jewish theology has, has always picked up on this. To covet violates the other laws. To covet begets other sins. I, I can prove this to you. Let's turn, you don't turn to Exodus. I'll put it up here. Exodus 20. This is the giving of 10 commandments. Here's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet, period. Let's move on. That's the way all of our displays have it, right? It's perfectly fine. Not against that. It says don't covet. Well, after people see that and they have to Google, what does the word covet mean? Um, they, they say, okay, I shouldn't covet. But you'll notice the commandment goes deeper than that. It's the one commandment that is internal. Right? This is what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, don't murder. Well, I haven't killed nobody. Oh, no, no, it's a heart issue. The heart issue is covetousness. Right? Hate. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. Or, yeah, don't commit adultery. Well, I haven't cheated on my spouse. Yeah, but it's about lust. Covetousness. Right? It's the, all breaking the 10th commandment. Keep it and you're fine. Well, notice it isn't just don't covet, but notice what coveting leads to. It leads to um, um, envy your neighbor's house, adultery your neighbor's wife, and it leads to theft. Here you go. Anything that is your neighbor's. Right there in the 10th commandment, commandment are three of the commandments you will break. It's right there in the text. Because it's not, you don't just covet your neighbor's wife thinking, oh, that, uh, that, that would be a better life for me. Before long, the heart will spill out into your actions. What does Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And eventually when the mouth speaks, the feet start to move. You start neighboring your, or you start envying and desiring and coveting your neighbor's lifestyle his possessions, or whatever it is, before long, you're going to be trying to keep up with the Joneses. It begets other sins. This is James' point we saw several weeks ago. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then you'll say, the things you do ask for, you ask, you know, not the things you need to be asking for. So notice that covetousness leads to violence. You fight and quarrel. Anyone been on social media lately? There you go, right there in, in a nutshell. At its core, covetousness is unbelief. Remember that the first commandment and the tenth commandment are related. I think I can prove it to you. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Notice all of these are heart issues. They're stem from heart issues that then manifests himself out physically. And then notice, and covetousness. What is covetousness? It's idolatry. Number 10, number one. Covetousness is idolatry. Because covetousness says God is not enough. But when God is enough, you have enough. No adultery. No murder. No breaking the Sabbath. Peace. Contentment. Joy. Thirdly, entitlement over blessing. Entitlement comes when our pride, we deserve more, meets our contempt, they deserve less. 
That's how it works, right? Again, the problem isn't that someone owns a Bugatti. I think that's a real car that you and I will never drive. I think it's like a really expensive car. I don't know. I heard a rapper say it once. So um, it's not that we don't think anyone should have a Bugatti. We think I should have the car. They shouldn't. At least not until mine is upgraded. Then they can have the old model. Isn't that how it works? Hang out with pastors to see how they talk about their churches. It bothers me that Joel Osteen has the largest church in America. It bothers me to my core, as it should, frankly, but it does. And then you can allow contempt to sneak in. Now, that's a, I'll never meet him, but, but what about other friends? Or how about other churches? We can justify how great we are and how terrible they, they are. We don't mind if they have the nice house so long as their house isn't as nice as ours. We don't care if they married a beautiful woman, raised responsible children, preached at a large church, so long as I am somehow superior to them. Entitlement is demanding from God, and perhaps nothing more could be backwards. God should be demanding from us. Entitlement is a serious sin. God never gives us commandments, but he does bless us. And those blessings are not to feed our entitlements or our desires. Isaac is blessed by God in this text despite his sin. Isn't that incredible? We talked about that last week about the unconditional love of God, the unconditional grace and covenant of God. Isaac is a terrible human being, the first 11 verses of this chapter. Yet God blessed him. It's not entitlement, it's blessing. Blessings are far better. Blessings come from an attitude of humility that will lead to generosity. Entitlement comes from an attitude of discontentment and pride that will lead us down a very dangerous path. Very dangerous path. One last thing, and maybe we'll get out. And there's a whole lot more we could do, but we won't. Comparison over grace. Envy starts with comparison. I mean, you all know I like Duck Dynasty. When in doubt, watch the Duck Boys, okay? There's a great episode where Miss Kay is uh, taking her laundry and she's putting it up on the uh, line outside. Now, these people are multi, multi, multi millionaires and they lack a dryer. Okay? Now, my, my mother and father lack a washer and dryer, and it's driving me crazy. My dad will spend a Saturday afternoon washing clothes in Glencoe. It's a 30-minute drive up north in the northern part of the county, so he can do it. And, I, and he says, well, it saves me time. Like, you know what will save you time? Go downstairs, hit start. Wait an hour, put it in the dryer, hit start. And during that time, those hour or two it takes to do that, you could be doing other things. It's called technology. I mean, I don't understand this. It's driving me crazy. Well, they're bigger. Yeah, and you're paying more. If you took all that money you have spent at the laundromat, a laundromat in Glencoe is where he's going. How embarrassing is that, right? I mean, he's not going to use ours, but, but it's, I feel embarrassed for, for him. And mom's like, well, he could do it. You know, it just... It, it, it just Something happens as you age. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, this, uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> you, that's two weeks in a row you're trying to get me in trouble. Um, but <laughs> So uh, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. So Miss K is doing that. And Phil is sitting out there enjoying the, the shade. And the uh, daughters-in-law come over. And they say, girl, I don't know how they talk. Girl, what are you doing drying your clothes out here? 
Don't you need a dryer? Oh, Fielding says we don't need a dryer. And I can get along. I enjoy the, you know, being out in the weather. No, we got to go get you. And, and so they go and go get a dryer, whatever it is. And Phil does his little, you know, talking thing. And he says, it's a funny thing how that happens. We were perfectly content until someone said we didn't have some. And suddenly, Miss Kay had to go get that dryer. Yeah, Don. Yeah, yeah, in many ways, yeah. Some of you all grew up before um, where, where you were poor and didn't know it. Did you complain about it? No. What? problem with modern technology is we just don't leave people alone. Um, now, there are times to, to intervene, yes, of course, but, but we, 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 feed, we, we think our envy should be shared. <laughs> like if I'm not happy with all that I have, they can't be happy with what little they have, and that is not, that is very American. That is not biblical contentment. Um, when we start a sentence or a thought with, it's not fair, be aware, covetousness is about to come out. It's not fair. And this in many ways drives our economic policy, frankly, which is sort of what we're talking about. So social media has made this far worse. There are studies, um, particularly among young adults, kids, students, teenagers. Social media feeds anxiety more than anything in the world. Fatherless, number one. Social media will be, be number two. Give a kid a phone, and you've ruined their life. Because they will find everything they are lacking. Every Christmas, around November, mom and dad would get, I think it was the Sears catalog. Where would my brother and I turn? The toy section. We were perfectly content until we saw what was available to us. And mom and dad would say, we'll just make a small list for Christmas. We'll give it to Santa. And, and if we could have, we, we, we would have taken a picture of every page and sent it to mom and dad. It's comparison. When you start to compare yourself with someone else, it's amazing how... I'm going to turn this off. 